Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Down. My guest is Freddie DeBoer, and I'm going to introduce him in a second. But before that, a couple of announcements. The first is that our monthly Zoom hangout for founding members will now be on the third Sunday of the month at 8 p.m. So this is the thing where I get together with you guys for about an hour and a half every month and we talk about the show and you can grill me about the guests and anything else. We had been basically meeting on the first Sunday of the month, but it turns out that well, that's the hangout time of some other podcasts that you might also be fans of. So we don't want to have any competition or get into any territorial disputes. So unspeakable podcast hangouts will now take place on the third Sunday. That means the next one will be March 19th, Sunday, March 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Previously, I said it was March 5th. That did not happen. Again, this is for founding members. This is a really great perk. So if you want to participate, go to the Substack and join at the founding member level. The second item is that on March 18th, I will be part of a literary festival in New Jersey celebrating the novelist Philip Roth. It's called Philip Roth Unbound. It's taking place at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Roth's hometown of Newark, New Jersey. I'll be part of a panel called What Gives You the Right? And we'll be talking about issues of culture and identity and who is allowed to write what. Uh, for tickets, you can go to njpac.org. That's njpac.org. And uh, come on out. There's going to be a lot of really cool events and a lot of great uh, speakers and authors. So um, please do uh, think about attending. Okay. And the last item has to do with the unspeakeasy. The first thing is that our online community will be launching very soon, like in the next few weeks. So make sure you're on the mailing list if you want updates about that. Also, our retreat in Minneapolis, May 8th through 11th, now has a daytime option. The venue is so close to the city that a lot of people were interested in being day campers, as it were. So we're going to offer that. If you want to come just for the days, you can come May 9th and 10th and uh, take part in all the discussions and see the guest speakers and, and all of that. So go to theunspeakeasy.com and get in touch with me if you are interested in that option, uh, as well as the overnight option. Overnight is selling out quickly, but there are still some spots. Okay. My guest, Freddie DeBoer, writes about culture and social politics, often as they intersect with mental health. He has a very popular Substack newsletter and is the author of the 2020 book, The Cult of Smart. I've been wanting to have Freddie on the podcast for a long time, but I brought him in this week to address and expand on some issues that came up in an interview I did a few weeks ago about involuntary psychiatric treatment. Freddie, who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when he was 20, has a perspective that is quite a bit different from what you heard in that interview. He talks here about his experience in the mental health care system, including his first stay in a psychiatric hospital, and about the difficulties of getting proper care for people who know they need it, let alone for people who are resistant to treatment. He also stayed overtime and talked about a recent essay he published on his Substack newsletter about, as he puts it, why the 1990s were objectively the best time to be alive. That's a favorite subject of mine, as is the topic of how to cope with the vicissitudes of the new creative economy, which we also talk about. So uh, fittingly, if you're not yet a paying subscriber and you want to hear that part, go to my Substack megandown.substack.com and join at any level. It's really a great conversation there. Every week, the bonus content is really, really good, I think. So don't miss it. In the meantime, here is a really excellent, I think, conversation with Freddie DeBoer. Freddie DeBoer, welcome to The Unspeakable. Uh, thanks for having me. There are a lot of things I want to talk with you about, but First, I want to talk about an episode I did a few weeks ago. I spoke to a journalist named Rob Wypond, who has a new book out about involuntary psychiatric holds and the idea that 
psych patients are basically not being able to get out of the system once they're in it. And that includes being treated with drugs that may or may not be appropriate. I did push back a little in this interview since it's my understanding that it's actually quite difficult to get someone in treatment if they don't want to be. But many listeners were frustrated by the episode because it didn't ring true to anything they've observed or experienced. You've written a lot about the mental health care system, about your own experience as a patient. So I'll just start by asking you point blank, how hard is it to get someone committed? So that is very, very much dependent upon the uh, state that you uh, happen to be in. It varies a lot. It, you know, the, the general, the most common standard is that the, the medical staff have to be able to demonstrate that you are a danger to yourself or to others. Even within states, between states that have uh, different uh, versions of that standard, the actual practical significance of who can be held and for how long really, really, really depends. So there is no one answer. However, I would say that uh, in general, one of the hardest things to do was uh, in uh, the, the sort of field of, of mental health is that if you're a family member and you are a parent or a spouse or a sibling or a loved one of someone who has a severe mental illness, trying to get them into serious care against their wishes or even with their wishes often uh, is extremely difficult. And the, the whole notion that we have an over-treatment problem in psychiatric medicine is incorrect on its face. A psychiatric medicine has a massive undertreatment problem. Treatment is very, very difficult to come by, even for people with insurance, even with, for people of financial means, even for people who are very willing uh, and, in fact, desperate to receive that kind of treatment. Uh, if you have someone whose mental illness is preventing them uh, from assessing their own mental capability and their own need for uh, mental health medicine, which is a, a status called uh, anosognosia in psychiatric medicine, which is the, the state of being unable to understand how sick you are, um, then it's in fact very, very difficult. And I would in fact say that we badly need um, not a uh, tightening of standards to make it harder for people to be involuntarily committed, but we need to make involuntary treatment of the severely mentally ill uh, far easier. And if we did that, we'd save a lot of lives. Can you describe a little bit about your history? I mean, we don't, this is not a, an interview about your personal story. And I know you've talked about it a lot, but just so our listeners can have some context, like how did you first enter into this world and what were the circumstances under which you found yourself in a hospital the first time? Yeah, I have uh, bipolar disorder. I was diagnosed in 2002 when I was uh, involuntarily committed, beginning after an altercation with a neighbor in the parking lot of our apartment building. It's worth saying, and I've, I've been in and out of treatment for many years since then, 20 years ago, I have uh, been on, medic uh, on medication and um, stable now for over five years, which I'm very ha happy about. It's worth saying that I'm an example of someone who was life was saved by uh, involuntary treatment. I'm, I'm quite convinced that uh, if I had not been uh, taken to the hospital and given antipsychotic medication and taken to a longer term facility, that uh, I would have killed myself when I was having that initial psychotic episode because I was uh, out of my mind. And there are uh, millions of people uh, who have been involuntarily committed and who have gone on to be able to eventually, at least, treat their mental illness effectively. There's also many, many people who didn't receive that care uh, and who killed themselves, which is the, the more common outcome. But there's also uh, a risk of spectacular crimes, which I've mentioned before in this context, including, for example, uh, James Holmes, the uh, Aurora, Colorado shooter who killed 12 people in a movie theater and was essentially no one disputes uh, that he was uh, schizophrenic and having a psychotic episode. Um, this is someone who was evaluated by psychiatric personnel at the University of Colorado, uh, but he was never forcibly put into treatment. The result was 12 dead people. Sung Hui Cho, who was the, the mass murderer at 
uh, Virginia Tech, um, who killed 32 students. Uh, he was someone else who had had a psychological evaluation and had been found to be someone who was potentially dangerous, but uh, where the legal requirement for uh, treating him involuntarily was not met. And so 32 people are dead now who would have been alive had that happened. Um, and those are big scale uh, sort of famous uh, mass murder crimes. But it's really worth saying that a myth has popped up uh, online, which is that uh, people with mental illness are no more likely to be violent than anyone else, which is simply not true. So I'm going to quote uh, the National Institutes of Health now. Certain psychiatric conditions do increase a person's risk of committing a crime. Research suggests that Patients with mental illness may be more prone to violence if they do not receive adequate treatment or actively experiencing delusions or have longstanding paranoia. Such patients are often under the influence of their psychiatric illness, such as command hallucinations. Individuals with a severe mental illness that fall through the cracks or for one reason or another are non-adherent to treatment are particularly at higher risk of committing grave acts of violence. Untreated profound mental illness is particularly significant in cases of homicide and even more significant for mass murders of strangers. So that's that's the National Institute of Health uh, talking about this. In this effort to normalize mental illness that we've been living through, these facts about the, the higher rates of violent crime committed by people with psychotic disorders, with uh, who experience delusions, who uh, experience intense paranoia, etc., um, has become sort of unspeakable because it's considered to be stigmatizing and we need to pretend like uh, these problems are just identities uh, like any other. But in fact, mental illness has always been associated with a certain degree of greater pretend propensity for violence. It's true that the large majority of the mentally ill will never commit a violent crime. But it's also true that uh, the rates of suicidality among people with mental illness are vastly, vastly higher than they are for the general population. So we have a scenario where you have a set of people whose condition makes them dangerous to themselves and to others. And I think that it is asinine to look at our current system to see the number of people who commit suicide under the risk of their, uh, uh, under the influence of their mental illness, to see the number of people who commit acts of violence against others under the influence of their mental illness, and, and conclude that we need to do less treatment. Uh, what we need is more treatment. Of course, we need to treat patients with dignity and respect. And of course, there are uh, important questions to be answered about autonomy and choice. But the system has baked into it the ability for people to uh, petition for release, provided they meet certain legal requirements. And I think the other thing that is really essential that people understand, for people with severe mental illness, the need to be able to pay for their treatment does not just go away. Okay, so a, a, a very common attitude I encounter is the notion that, well, if people are being uh, are receiving involuntary treatment and they're really that bad off, then it must follow that the state is picking up uh, the tab. But that's often not true. It's, it's often with the case that even if you're going into a, an involuntary commitment, that you will be forced to pay the bill, that you will either your, your insurance will be charged or that you'll rack up medical debt. And it's also true that these facilities are so uh, overburdened that they're very often putting people on the street who are still in severe uh, mental health distress, that they simply need the beds. And so they hustle people out of there. And again, it just cuts directly against this idea of people being thrown into institutions and languishing there. Right. Okay. Well, I want to talk about the the sort of identity component and the you know the rise of uh, mental illness falling under disability rights kinds of initiatives. But but first, how old were you in 2002 when you had this altercation in the parking lot? I was 20. And what did your mind feel like to you? Can you describe sort of the contents of your brain in that period? Mm -hmm. So I can't speak for anyone else's bipolar disorder, but mine is characterized um, I mean, the, the most dangerous element of it is um, severe and escalating paranoia that gets worse and worse over time. I, you know, mania, first of all, for most of us is slow building. So I think there's a misconception that many people have about bipolar disorder that you swing very quickly between extremes that in the morning you're very down and in the afternoon you're very up. Uh, for the vast majority of people with bipolar disorder, that is not true. Bipolar disorder is a series of long, slow mood cycles that build over time. 
So uh, mania is a kind of excitatory state. It is a heightening of your awareness. It is an intensification of your sense of danger around you. It is a, a sense that you are very, very important to the universe. So it, it's a kind of grandiosity that builds over time, which itself feeds into the paranoia. So because you are, you become very grandiose and you see yourself as being a key cog in life's plan, because you begin to see over time, you begin to feel that the, the world is hanging on you and then you have immense consequences. And this contributes to a paranoia, which uh, is very, very common in schizophrenics uh, and is fairly common among people with bipolar disorder. Because if you think that everything is about you, then everything that you see is a potential threat to you. So when you're walking down the street and you hear people laughing, you know deep inside of you that they're laughing at you. When uh, you uh, happen to cat to sort of uh, catch the eye of someone when you're when your eyes meet as you pass on the street, you know it's because they're surveilling you because you're so important, right? I became I become possessed of the idea that people in my social circle are plotting against me. I become obsessive about the notion that uh, friends of mine are bad-mouthing me to other friends in an effort to discredit me or to make me alone. I become uh, convinced that um, over time that I become obsessive about uh, money being stolen from my bank accounts. So I will, uh, I mean, there have been times in the past when I've done it so, I've so habitually changed my passwords that my bank called me for fear that I was suffering from identity fraud uh, because I was doing it so repetitively. Um, And I become convinced that people I know or have known in the past are the ones who are supposedly stealing from a bank account, even though there's never any actual evidence that any money is gone. Uh, when it gets to be its worst stage, when I'm really in the flower of real psychotic mania, um, I come to believe that people are putting glass in my food uh, or people are, are sneaking into my uh, apartment to poison me. And this all goes along with not, not sleeping, you know, barely sleeping. I, for me, I... Uh, don't eat and I exercise like crazy. So I lose a ton of weight. There's all kinds of theories about what exactly is being triggered in these moments. But at that night, um, I had was in a situation where I was really uh, in a bad shape. And unfortunately, I was living alone in this tiny apartment in my hometown in Connecticut. So there was really, I was I'd sort of withdrawn myself. And there was uh, really no one who was sort of keeping tabs on me. I had this little red car and the uh, transmission had something was wrong with the transmission. So it wouldn't go in reverse. And I was trying to push it into a spot, like back into a spot by pushing it from the front. But it was the spot was on a little bit of a grade. And so the car kept kind of like rolling back down. Um, So it was just totally irrational because I would never have been able to actually like get into it and put it in park. And this guy who lived in my building came over and was like, you know, what are you doing? And I interpreted that as uh, as, as an attack, uh, and we got into a, a screaming match with a little bit of shoving. And uh, the cops were called, uh, and they came and they took me to the hospital and they gave me a shot of Haldol and uh, sent me off to a uh, facility where I was for, I believe, um, like almost three weeks. I think. Okay, and I want to hear what that facility was like, but first, when you talk about the grandiosity. At that time in your life, let's just start with this as an example, like how sort of specific was your sense of your importance? Like, did you think that you had been put in charge of something? Did you see yourself as having some kind of role or was it just sort of more ambient? Yeah, I mean, I I did not see myself as the Messiah or anything like that. Um, certainly in the early stages, it has a, a tendency to, you know, convince me that I'm going to write the great American novel or that I have words of wisdom that the world desperately needs to hear. Uh, but it's more of just an ambient sense that when you walk around the world, the focus of the world moves around with you, right? That like, it's, you know, it's, I, I wouldn't call it arrogance in the sense of thinking that you're better than other people. Uh, for me, it's just a sort of deeply ingrained feeling that um, the camera of the movie of life is following me. Okay. I mean, everybody has this to a certain extent. It's sort of like solipsism on steroids, perhaps. Right. And this, and this is right. And, and, but the, I, I think the thing that like 
that makes it really pathological is that it makes you unable to imagine that people have behaviors that they undertake that are not because of you, right? In other words, everything that I see my friends doing, everything that I see people around me doing when it gets really bad, I ultimately that must be about me in some sense. I am the the prime mover of all things. And so it's impossible for me to imagine that if two friends hung out without me, right, that they didn't do it specifically to uh, plot against me, right? Like that's the sort of thing. It's the it's the assumption that all human behavior around me is being undertaken with the purpose of getting near to me, of uh, drafting off of my glory, but also very often of, um, of trying to, to stop my inevitable rise and trying to harm me because I've become too important to the world. Right, right. Okay, got it. And so you were 20 when this happened. Had there been any seeds of this for you as a child and a- as a teenager? I think we hear a lot that diagnoses like schizophrenia and I guess bipolar really crop up in in the early 20s, I think maybe especially for men. Was this, did this just totally come out of the blue for you? Um, you know, it's it's hard to say about the mania. Definitely there was depression. I mean, what, what preceded the mania was a period of really intense depression that had me curled up uh, the floor, you know, in the fetal position. Sometimes I would find it so difficult to move that I would urinate on myself. The uh, so th- in the sense that um, the uh, you know the other side of bipolar disorder, um, I definitely experienced depression. It's hard to say if there were any signs of mania when I was I was younger. Um, I'm an orphan, so I don't really have anyone to ask. My uh, siblings have at times suggested that they were perhaps aware that something was wrong. But I mean, the thing you know, everybody wants to assume that you're okay. Right. Like, so I made it through six years of graduate school, two for master's and four for PhD, in which I successfully got those two degrees and was generally a functioning person. I know uh, from conversations I've had since all of this went public that, uh, you know, a lot of my peers were concerned for me and thought that I was unstable, which is true. But, you know, I was able to do it. Um, without anyone at either of these universities ever pulling me aside and saying, you know, there's something obviously wrong with you, you you need help. And I think the thing is, I don't think that they were being negligent. I just think that, you know, this is another reason why I think we just need much more aggressive psychiatric care is that people just badly want to believe that the people around them are okay, right? They don't want to be the one to have the conversation with someone about their instability, uh, they will opportunistically look for other explanations, right? Uh, I mean, one of the problems for me was that, you know, earlier in my life, I had a, a pretty severe drinking problem. And a lot of my instability uh, and behaviors that might have gotten me referred to care were just assumed to be a function of my drinking rather than of of mental illness. But, you mean like when you were a teenager, before you were 20? Um, no, no I'm, I'm talking about after. I mean, I, I don't know. I was a weird kid. I became uh, popular in high school, uh, was an absolute disaster as a student in high school. I never went a semester without failing a, a math or science class or both. I was definitely seen as sort of a weirdo, but as an affectionate weirdo. It's just hard to say. I mean, it's hard to say, you know, which of these things might have been the product of my disorder, it, you know, it's all confounded with the fact, I mean, part of the reason why I didn't identify myself as having depression when I suffered from it so badly for months was just that, you know, to me, it just felt like mourning for, you know, the collapse of my family, which is something that had happened when I was a teenager. And it was, so it was difficult to see if there was something, anything physiologically wrong with me, I just didn't have a vocabulary for it. Okay. And your parents had died when you were a teenager? You say you were an orphan. What does that mean? My mother died of brain cancer when I was seven. My father died of liver cancer when I was 15. Wow. So I can see how it would be hard to kind of suss out what was what, because that would, of course, that's an incredibly traumatic couple of events that would make anybody, quote unquote, crazy. What was the facility like that you went into for that initial 
stay. I won't uh, get into the specific uh, facility um, or doctors, but it's a, 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 a state facility that uh, has a large mental health program uh, with a, a number of wards. I don't know. It's um, a lot of my memories of it are pretty hazy for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I was on powerful antipsychotic medication while I was there, but you know, it wasn't like the movies. It wasn't. It wasn't like a horror show. I was mostly. I mean, I think that my my sort of <laughs> emotional state was like confusion more than anything else. But you know, it's by far the longest time I've ever been in inpatient care, and yet I never felt like I sort of figured out what the routine was. Um, it always seemed like the other patients just had much greater sense of sort of how things worked, even patients who showed up after I did. But And you um, were there three weeks, you said? Um, I think. I don't know. Um, it's, it, was, it was more than two weeks and less than a month, is, I'm, I'm pretty sure. But, you know, this is 20 years ago. And like I said, uh, I was on a lot of medication and I really actively repressed this stuff for, you know, 15 years or, or whatever. But, you know, it was group therapy just about every day in the morning, individual therapy sessions less often, uh, getting meds, you know, I, uh, there wasn't like, no one was forcibly injecting me with anything. I was never, I didn't have to like open my mouth and show them that I had taken my medication. It was definitely more chill than that. There were, I guess what you, I, I'm not sure if their official title would be orderly or security guard or what, but there were these guy, guys called wardies. Uh, everybody called them wardies anyway. And they were, you know, like the, the people who, sort of kept basic order. Yeah. And I, I mean, the thing is, is I don't really understand the exact legal circumstances under which I was held. I don't remember when I was uh, sort of checked in at all for obvious reasons. I don't, I don't recall ever having like a hearing. Like I, I don't remember ever having a time when I was, I remember there was plenty of paperwork, but I don't remember uh, like a time when they said, okay, like you have to be here and you have to be here for until this date. And then you have, like, I don't remember any of that. I just remember like sort of just being there and knowing that I had to be there at the beginning. And then at, at some point it sort of switched to, well, you, as you know, you don't have to stay any longer, but we think that you should. And then it was, there was, okay, you know, you're out of here in three days. The, the process through which that sort of thing was uh, adjudicated was not clear to me. But again, I, you know, I, I could easily just be misremembering something. But, it, you know, I mean, um, they, I mean, this isn't, I was far from the only time that I've ever been inpatient. It's very boring by design. There's lots of downtime. There was, you know, a little library with like, I don't know, like, like John, like Michael Crichton books or John Grisham books or whatever in there. Um, there were activities like, um, uh, painting, um, and there was physical activity, um, things like that. But yeah, I mean, you, you do your, your, your group therapy, which I don't know. I group therapy is like hard to feel like you're getting anything out of it while it's happening. Yeah. I was going to say like for something like that, everybody's so different. I mean, it seems like it would be interesting, but I don't know how useful maybe. Yeah. I mean, I would kind of liken it to travel. Like when you go on a trip and at the time that it's happening, it sometimes feels like it's more hassle and anxiety than fun, but that over time later on, when you look back on the memories, you sort of sort of see them positively. I don't, you know, it, I mean, so there's a few things like whenever you get into a group therapy uh, context or, or a support group context, it's usually the case that a few people dominate the discussion, even though who's ever leading the therapy session will usually try to uh, address that. You know, people just very much read into the questions, whatever they want to talk about that day, right? Like whatever's bothering them or on their mind, because the questions tend to be kind of open-ended it can, just becomes a forum for people to sort of say, you know, stuff that you don't think has anything to do with what anything that you're talking about. And um, uh, it's, yeah, it's in a test of patience. And I think that it's, a you know, it helps you to develop empathy because 
um, I can tell you like, look, like it, it is very easy to get very deeply annoyed with people that you're in group therapy with. Right. <laughs> because like, I mean, like a, a big thing for me is that people just always talk about the same stuff. Right. Like yeah. people with mental illnesses tend to have like specific fixations. You, you might have a guy who was forced into bankruptcy or something. And that just, just the only thing that he ever wants to talk about and the indignity of it and how it humiliated him and how it set it back so far. And you're just bringing every discussion back to that. But you do learn sort of that you're not the only person in the universe and that a lot of people have really intense problems, including problems that are, that are deeper than yours. And it gives you um, a sense of, you know, all the different ways things could go wrong, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You said this was a state hospital. This was a public facility. Who was paying for it? So uh, and ultimately, uh, it was uh, my insurance uh, paid for uh, part of it. But again, uh, you know, I'm not 100% sure sort of what uh, I was footing the bill for and what I wasn't. I mean, this is a, this is a scenario where like I... Uh, after I got discharged, you know, I left with a bag full of pills and uh, a handful of papers, some of which were, you know, um, like referrals or, or references to outpatient psychiatrists, you know, and I ended up doing none of that for very long. Right. <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I paid some bills. Uh, uh, I think that my insurance paid for part of it. But uh, again, like I think it really super depends upon like individual scenarios, who's paying for what. I know for a fact that there are people there who had no ability to pay either with insurance or with anything else. But uh, personally, yeah, I mean, insurance covers some of mine. And, and I did pay some bills later on, although I sort of didn't pay them for a long time also. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I've been doing this show every week for more than two years, and I pretty much do it all by myself. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, or secret investment cabal. I do it because I love it. And if you love it or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. The old way of doing that was through Patreon. Now listeners support the podcast through my Substack page, megandaum.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can become a paid subscriber for as little as $7 a month. That gets you extras related to the unspeakable. Things like early and ad-free access to the show, access to bonus content, and the opportunity to leave comments. If you join at the founding member level, you can join us every month on Zoom, where a bunch of us get together and talk about recent episodes. Best of all, if you become a paying subscriber at any level, you'll never have to hear this message again. So go to megandaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M and join our community on the level that's right for you. And honestly, just telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, spreading the word means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking about. And with that, back to the interview. I want to kind of shift, kind of pull the camera out a little bit here and have you talk about the bigger picture. I mean, we hear, it seems like there are still these two conflicting narratives. We hear that people are over-medicated. And I think at the beginning here, you said that that was largely not true. We hear that people don't have autonomy, that patients don't have enough rights. But we also see constantly, especially in public settings, that it's nearly impossible to get people off the streets, for example, uh, because it's violating civil rights, all that kind of stuff. So I'm wondering, I still want you to to tell your story. So if maybe there's a way to layer your your own story and timeline onto some of these bigger issues, like what do you think about this notion that it is infringing upon somebody's civil rights to insist that they go somewhere for treatment. The first thing I would say is that it's perfectly possible that for both things to be true, that we could have sort of a reverse Goldilocks situation where it is simultaneously the case that some people get snatched up by the system and can't get out in a way that's inappropriate and violates their rights. And also 
that a lot of people slip through the cracks of the system and, you know, end up uh, living under bridges or killing people or killing themselves. Um, we can recognize that we're never going to devise a perfect system, but as long as there are a series of well-vetted and deeply established sort of structures in place to ensure that people who get do get pulled into involuntary care uh, have uh, representation of some kind that can advocate for them if they want to get out and the doctors don't want to let them out, that there be uh, every effort to make uh, contact with uh, with family members who can advocate for them, um, and that there be, you know, c clear and strictly enforced rules about um, when people can get out and, and why. But again, you know, uh, you you hear an awful lot about a 72-hour hold. Again, it depends a ton on the, on the state, but it is true that it is common in various states for there to be a standard whereby someone, a judge or a, a doctor, can have someone be held in a psychiatric facility for three days um, before there has to be any kind of uh, further legal vetting. Um, I do think that it is it, it, it can be the case that in some states and some of the time, it can be too easy for that uh, period to be extended further. Again, I don't think that's the norm. And we have to remember that like the norm is a totally overburdened mental health system where people who want to stay are often discharged before they're ready because they need the bed for a new patient. So, for example, you look at the example of a guy named Bailey Hammer. Uh, this is a guy, he's in, in his early 20s, and uh, he has schizophrenia. His parents are aware that he has that profound problem. He is unable to get long-term care anywhere. Uh, he keeps getting referred to outpatient care, despite the fact that he's an increasingly erratic schizophrenic patient with violent fantasies and delusions. This is someone who said that he saw demons crawling on his uh, walls at night. The, the parents of the family tried desperately to get him into somewhere. But I mean, I, I tell people this all the time. There is this concept in people's minds of like a place you can just go for help. In the, in the mental health system, that like you can just turn up at the door of a mental health facility and say, hey, I'm, uh, I'm psychotic and I need to stay here for a while. People have this concept. Wait, you're saying that that's what people think exists? The notion of go get some help, right? Like, oh, you're oh, like a drop-in center. Go, yeah, your... go, go get some help, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's important to say like, Many mental health facilities need a referral uh, from another physician, just like anywhere else, right? Like, um, that's why, you know, it's it, the, the first trip is to the emergency room. Um, at the emergency room, you'll be uh, the bottom of the priority list. You'll get triaged down again and again and again. I've sat in, uh, in waiting rooms waiting to be seen by an emergency room psychiatrist for more than six hours before when I knew that I was in a severe state and that I needed help. Because uh, unfortunately, a lot of normal medical personnel don't take psychiatric patients seriously. And I have not been a big fan of many of the emergency room psychiatrists that I've met. So you can't just show up and get help for someone. And this, this kid, Bailey Hammer, his parents just tried and tried and tried to get him into a facility, but there was, uh, they weren't taking new patients or there was no one who could pay for it, et cetera. And eventually, Bailey, Bailey Hammer stuck a knife in another guy's head. And now uh, it's two lives that are effectively ended because that guy is dead and because Bailey Hammer is now going to spend his the rest of his life either in a prison or in uh, a long-term facility from which he will never emerge. Uh, and that was an entirely preventable uh, scenario where you had uh, both the uh, schizophrenic patient himself and his parents acknowledging that he was badly sick and trying to get him help. Uh, and despite constantly begging for that help, they could not get it in time and he killed somebody. And so, you know, when I look at the world of American um, mental health care, um, that's the world that I see. I don't see the world where people are getting snatched up with minor uh, issues um, and committed long term to uh, <clears throat> these facilities without adequate uh, vetting. What I see instead is a system that can't possibly bear to treat all of the patients that need the care and, and a lot of human de devastation because of it. You know, 
Uh, sorry, go ahead. One of the things that came up with this guest I had recently was the idea that people were calling suicide hotlines, for instance, and before they knew it, like the paramedics were there and they were being taken into, you know, pretty intense treatment or inpatient facilities. Does that ring true at all to you? I mean, sure. I mean, could it, could, can that happen? Yeah, that, that, that can certainly happen. Right. And again, like, you know, um, it could be the case that there's just a, a, a really ugly misalignment of who is being involuntarily committed and, and who's not being in that um, some people are put into the system when they shouldn't be and that many other people are not able to get in the system when they should be. But, I, you know, I mean, like, you have to set this all against the backdrop of an anti-psychiatry movement that's powerful uh, and has been existed for, for decades, um, is influential in American medicine, and is based on a series of myths and falsehoods. So uh, I'm sure that you've heard of the Rosenhan experiments, which was a, uh, a psychology professor, I believe, I think from Stanford, uh, went to took uh, seven uh, uh, of his research assistants, and they all went to different uh, mental health care facilities. And even though they were sane, they uh, presented themselves as being insane, and they were diagnosed with various mental illnesses and treated, and and were sort of like the system sort of absorbed them and just said, "Oh yes, these people are mentally mm. ill." Um, the problem with that is that it's that whole story, which has been immensely influential, is complete bullshit. So there were issues where uh, Rosenhan was fabricating quotes, where he was uh, committing data fraud uh, in terms of what he was uh, putting down in terms of his data. But the bigger issue is that uh, there is no evidence that six of those eight people ever existed. So um, Susanna uh, Cahillan uh, wrote a book uh, about this experiment um, and extensively researched it. Other people have done as well. You can find no corroboration whatsoever that uh, that these six research assistants actually ever existed or went to Wait, any. This was just made up out of whole cloth. And when was this supposed to have happened? This was in the 1970s. Yeah. So not only that did, did couldn't, can no one find corroboration that these people existed. The one person that we know did exist, a graduate student of his, um, as described in the book, said that uh, his experience was misrepresented by uh, Rosenhan. Um, so y- you have that as this sort of this cautionary tale of American medicine, how, how you know, people who are not actually mentally ill can just easily get pulled up into the system. But the story is false, even though it's informed the whole anti-psychiatry movement, uh, sort of the whole one flew over the cuckoo's nest thing, etc. The fundamental issue is that many people don't want to acknowledge that really uh, dangerous mental illness exists. They want to think that uh, because these mental illnesses come from ourselves, they're part of identity, they therefore cannot be bad. And so they come up with really sort of uh, elaborate ways to sort of deny that any bad things ever spring from mental illness. Speaking as someone whose life was you know, pretty nearly ruined by mental illness, that is uh, very frustrating for me. And unfortunately, right now what we have is the rise of mental sort of performed mental illness on social media. So people with ADHD or or depression or anxiety who make those sort of core to their presentation online, they, they are sort of on, you know, uh, there's this whole thing called ADHD Twitter, which is just people talking about the their their ADHD and how it defines their whole lives. I mean, they, they will come up with the most r- remarkable sort of thing to say like this is this is why i'm the way i am everything about them is because of their adhd and it's adhd it's not even like something more severe i mean it's pretty that's pretty banal yeah right and then you have the sort of the dubious extremely dubious sort of tiktok influencers who are famous for being sick so there was just a story in the new york times about how there had been this this big epidemic of almost always uh, adolescent teen girls who are very active on social media suddenly developing what they believe to be Tourette syndrome who where the etiology of their syndrome did not match the normal etiology of Tourette's 
Well, a lot of them have suddenly sort of gotten over it as that as that trend has passed. But you have there's a there's DID TikTok, so dissociative identity disorder, which is what we used to call a multiple personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a diagnosis that is uh, extremely controversial. There are very serious experts who don't think it exists at all. And if it does, uh, then um, the number of legitimate cases has been very, very low. It's an extremely rare mental illness. And yet suddenly there are thousands of adolescent girls on TikTok uh, believe that they have dissociative identity disorder who uh, make videos where you get to meet each of their what they call alters, mm-hmm. um, which is not what uh, dissociative identity disorder is like at all, but who, if anyone expresses skepticism, uh, about their diagnosis, they're, uh, accused of being, uh, uncaring about mental illness. And- right. They're erasing their humanity. Right. And, yeah. and they're, and they're guilty of ableism or whatever. Um, so as this happens, right, as you have the rise of all these people with minor mental illnesses or dubious mental illnesses, uh, who are emboldened by social media, where the incentive is to share and share and share and to, and to be more and more and more make your identity these mental illnesses as that happens, you see the ex- sort of the people who are who have the most severe problems, the schizophrenic, the schizoaffective, the bipolar, they are sort of moved more and more to the side. And the public perception of mental illness becomes something that's entirely manageable and that isn't actually that bad. But we know that guys like Bailey Hammer exist. Um, Here in Brooklyn, uh, just a week or two ago, uh, there was a man who had been struggled with schizophrenia his entire life. And he mowed down a couple people, killing them with a U-Haul under the influence of his schizophrenia. There's people who think that the... uh, Michigan State shooter from uh, a few weeks back um, was under the influence of mental illness. And there's, you know, it's not just sort of the spectacular sort of like big public crimes, right? Like, you know, I didn't know personally, uh, everybody gave him a wide berth, but there was a guy at a facility who, well, I noticed that everybody gave him a wide berth and I asked another patient and it was because uh, his thing was he liked to play with and eat his own excrement, right? And that is a kind of, you know, behavior that can't be cast as just an identity difference, right? <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a kink category or a, well, not well, a, some, some kind of LARPing or like, you know, fecal play or something. I mean, I mean you know, I mean, people who have, I think it's called coprophilia, uh, people who have that, this problem, you know, are people who will be perfectly willing often to uh, engage in it in public, for example, right? Yeah. There's, there's got to be some acknowledgement that this stuff is just bad, it's unfortunate, that it is indeed a disability, meaning that it is like a bad thing without the romanticizing of it that happens with the sort of one flew over the cuckoo's nest uh, uh, sort of uh, mental illness school that sort of sees mentally ill patients as just people who need help, but who can also be dangerous to others and who sometimes need to be managed by medical personnel for the good of the community. Yeah, you've, I believe you coined the the term or the phrase gentrification of mental illness. You, you talked about this with Barry Weiss on her podcast, and it was absolutely riveting. Just the the idea, everything you just described, that the people who are the most public faces of these various disorders or diagnoses are the, the highest functioning. So we see them and we say, well, why should I stigmatize this person? They're, they're just a little different. And in fact, they are either not representative of the syndrome or in fact, just performing the syndrome. Yeah. I mean, look, like, I'm not interested in denying the experience of any individual person, right? I would not go to someone and say, I think that, you, that you're, you're full of shit and that your disorder is made up. And I don't think that's, that that's even the problem. What the problem is, is, I mean, I think it's just, it's just like superficially and obviously true that people who sleep under bridges because of their schizophrenia are not a part of the public conversation about schizophrenia. Right. People who are under 24 hour care because they're so they so repetitively self-harm 
are not in the on they're not on mental illness TikTok, right? I can probably bet that the guy who uh, played with and ate his own shit was not somebody who was going on Twitter and talking about his mental illness journey. <laughs> Maybe 4chan or other places. Yes, exactly. It's just an inevitable that um, the the most afflicted, and for the record, I'm not the most afflicted. I have, I'm, I'm managing my bipolar disorder. I have a manageable illness, thankfully. But the people who are the most afflicted are read out of the conversation. And so what you're left with is a lot of people who are the highest functioning, who have adopted this sort of identity language and who will use that identity language to accuse you of bigotry if you suggest that there's anything bad with mental illness. But what that does is it undermines public understanding of what mental illness is. There's this whole, there's this whole thing now where whenever there's a mass shooting, there is a wave of people on Twitter saying like some version of uh, mental illness doesn't do that. Right. They're 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 very, very invested in the idea that uh, mass shootings can't be the result of mental illness. And I think the short term political reason for that is uh, they don't want anyone to distract from the issue of gun control. And number two, they want to blame every mass shooting on white supremacy. We we know for a fact that there have been mass shooters like James Holmes who have been severely mentally ill. And the problem is, is that if you're saying that mental illness can't do these bad things, then you're undermining the most basic protections that we give to people with mental illness, right? Which includes, for example, the legal protections that people with mental illness are afforded that um, keep them, in some cases, um, from being in general population in maximum security prisons and instead end up in secure long-term facilities, right? I'm afraid that the more that people say mental illness can't do that, the more that we define the mentally ill as the person on Twitter who talks about their anxiety uh, uh, 24 hours a day, someone high functioning who doesn't do anything wrong, then when we have people with mental illness who do really bad things, because sometimes people with mental illness do really bad things, that we won't have the capacity for compassion that we need to say, okay, this person did a really bad thing. They're probably going to need to be in a long-term care for a long time uh, and not be allowed to get out. But we are extending them special accommodation because they weren't able to control themselves when they did what they did. Mm -hmm. What do you think or what do we know about the sort of state of the art of psychiatric medication? That was another thing that came up with Rob Wypond is he thought that there had not been there had not been meaningful advancements in medications. He thought that uh, additionally that Abilify was massively overprescribed. I, I tend to think that's true. I certainly know a whole lot of people who've been prescribed Abilify for reasons that are unclear. I know you've had a lot of experience with different medications. Where are we with that? Yeah, so uh, there has not been uh, a lot of uh, advancement in um, uh, psychiatric medication, but there has been some. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of it right now, but there. So I, I have taken uh, olanzapine for a long, long time. Olanzapine is a second generation antipsychotic, I, but there's a it is punishingly um, high levels of weight gain. I am well, I'm like 75 pounds heavier than I was before I went back on pills. But there's a new version, uh, which unfortunately is under patent. So that's a whole other thing about how we pay for this stuff. But there's a new version that is not associated with weight gain. And that is potentially life-altering life for people. Uh, it is a way to make an existing drug more palatable uh, and removing one of the side effects that is the most difficult for people to go off to, to continue on antipsychotic medication. I think it, um, I believe that there's research out there showing that People are surveyed about why they went off their, off their med into antipsychotic medication. Uh, weight gain was, I think, the number one reason. There hasn't been a lot of advancement in psychiatric medicine, in part because they're starved for resources. After Prozac was patented and became a national phenomenon, there was a gold rush in the pharmaceutical industry to look for psychiatric medications because Prozac was a huge moneymaker. And of course, we saw the rise of Paxil and Zoloft uh, and Effexor, et cetera. These medications uh, had the potential to be sort of mass prescribed. And so they were attractive to the pharmaceutical companies. 
Luckily, most people don't need antipsychotic medication and never will. Unfortunately, the fact that most people don't need an antipsychotic medication and never will means that like the addressable market of new antipsychotic medications is small. So there's less financial incentive for these companies to be producing these drugs. These drugs are deeply imperfect. Uh, no one needs to tell me that. I suffer from the waking. I sweat constantly. This is from a whole cocktail of drugs, but I, I suffer from weight gain. I uh, I sweat constantly. My I have tremors in my hands. Sometimes I get akathisia, which is uh, the sort of repetitive, uncontrollable movement of your limbs. So my 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 legs um, tendency to twitch. Sometimes they twitch so badly in my sleep that they wake up my wake up my girlfriend. I have uh, constant. Uh, low-level gastrointestinal problems that sometimes are not low-level. Um, and I won't get into the specific details of them because it's gross, but it's extremely unpleasant. I have uh, terrible attentional and focus difficulties. I mean, I, it's very difficult right now for me to be having this podcast with you because I keep blanking out and trying to refocus on whatever the question was, um, which is a very common effect of antipsychotic medication. Also the common effect of being the host. So don't, don't worry. We're on even ground. Yeah. Um, you know, and just lots of stuff, just lots and lots of stuff. I know how bad the side effects of these medications are. I also think that while I understand why drugs like Seroquel, so again, antipsychotics are sometimes prescribed as sleep aids because, uh, you know, you tend to sleep, uh, not just to be able to get to sleep, but to sleep deeply uh, and for a long time on these medications. Um, I think it's a little crazy to be giving people antipsychotic medication just as a sleep aid because they are so intense and their side effects profile is so discouraging. But it's essential to say that antipsychotics really work. When I am put on antipsychotic medication, I stop being psychotic, right? Like delusions clear up and you see the extent of your own problems much more deeply. I've uh, been injected with Haldol once and with uh, Geodon twice, which Geodon is another injectable antipsychotic second generation. And it is remarkable how quickly they work. I mean, I think with Geodon, you know, over the course of an hour, um, I went from really severely manic and in a very bad way to apprehending where I was why I was there and what I needed to do next. And in fact, like that, you know, in injectable antipsychotics can be very good for getting people into the headspace necessary to then commit to taking oral medication. So at the, the fundamental work of, uh, of being, uh, of clearing up uh, psychotic symptoms, I can tell you from personal testimony that they work very well. Uh, they are obviously an extreme form of medicine. They should not be used lightly. I think it, I would not be, I'm not sure that I would disagree that, that they are overused, though I think it really depends upon the population and what the situation is. But fundamentally, um, these are not just sedating drugs, although they do sedate you somewhat, but they, uh, they address the fundamental underlying psychiatric issue. And you can contrast that with the antidepressants, where it is a persistent controversy whether they work at all, right? Like, we don't know. I mean, I think the best evidence is that SSRIs do work, but mildly. But, you know, this is constantly a, a matter of debate within the research literature. So we don't even know if the antidepressants that we have work, whereas we know the antipsychotics work. We just don't think that they work without significant cost. Okay. I have a question and you might not be able to answer it, but I suspect it's one that you've thought about. Do you think that your bipolar condition is like a part of your DNA, a part of your chemistry, or is it something that was either caused or exacerbated by this trauma that you had as a child? I was not familiar with your, with your backstory as a child, losing your parents so early. Do you think that that had any role in how your mind kind of developed? You know, I genuinely have no idea. I, re I really don't. Um, I mean, I will say this. My bipolar disorder is something that I feel in my body first, right? It is not merely psychological. I can tell you for a fact that it has a, a strong physiological component. 
the feeling of depression, you know, people who suffer from monopolar depression know this very well, the, the, the feeling of lethargy and the feeling of emptiness that is like a physical feeling. Mania is even more intensely so, the sense of total jitteriness and a body that's sort of crackling and alive with energy and that is sensitive to the touch. So I don't think that in a simplistic way, I just have a psychological problem that things happened to me when I was young that were traumatic, and it caused me to sort of think my way into bipolar disorder. Um, my guess is that like a, many, many, many things in life, it's a product of gene and um, environmental interactions. Uh, you know, there has been some research done on schizophrenia. Schizophrenia certainly... Uh, appears to have a significant hereditary component. Like your, your, your odds of having schizophrenia if one of your parents has schizophrenia are dramatically higher. But the uh, speculative, because we really don't know about any of this stuff, but speculatively, some people say that you can have a gene that predisposes you to schizophrenia, but you may never have the environmental sort of trigger at the right time that could result in the symptoms of the disease expressing themselves. It's, it's not uh, universally true, but it's very, very common for people with psychiatric, with, excuse me, with psychotic disorders uh, like bipolar or schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. It's very, very common for that, to, the symptoms to first emerge like between like 14, uh, 15 and 25. It's sort of, sort of, sort of like that, that young, late adolescence, young uh, adulthood period is um, when most people seem to develop their symptoms. And so it's certainly possible that there is an expression of, of something that's genetic that depends upon a certain kind of psychological trauma or whatever. But, you know, I don't, I don't know. And I don't know. I don't think anybody knows really. We're going to wrap up this portion of the conversation in a minute. But before I let you go for this part. I want to ask you, what advice would you give to family members who are desperate to get their loved one either in treatment or even off of the street? I mean, we hear all the time that the, the people that we see on the street who are the most acting out, the most obstreperous, the most visibly unwell, they a lot of them do have family members who've tried desperately to change that situation. And for whatever reason, they're just not able to force their family members into treatment. And we've all, we've seen police. I've certainly seen on the streets of New York City, police, you know, having negotiations with, you know, clearly mentally ill, distressed homeless person, you know, please, can we get you into treatment? What can we do for you? Can we work with you? And it's like this struggle session. And the authorities don't have any authority in a lot of cases. So what advice would you give to a family member trying to get help for somebody? So, I, you know, there unfortunately is no silver bullet that is going to help somebody get into care if they don't want to. Um, I mean, part of the tragedy of schizophrenia particularly um, is that the uh, paranoid delusions that are so common to that condition are like the worst possible thing if you're trying to tell someone to go to a hospital, a, you know, sort of scary sounding strange place to receive medication and be observed by people like that's just terrifying, right? <clears throat> I think, first of all, uh, if you believe that there are danger to themselves or others, and, you know, I think, it, I believe that in most of the legal jurisdictions, it has to be an immediate threat to themselves or others. I think if you believe that's true, if you think this is a person who's going to kill themselves or hurt somebody else, um, you sh have to be prepared to tell medical personnel or law enforcement that. Uh, and I understand that that's a big escalation. Um, in some states, it won't matter and nothing will happen. In some states, it, will result, it could result in their involuntary commitment. I absolutely don't take uh, involuntary commitment lightly, but it's uh, a tool that if it's, it's a choice between that or someone dying, right? Someone ending up in a situation in which, like Bailey Hammer, where they're going to end essentially two lives um, by committing an act of violence, um, I think that that's an escalation that you have to be willing to consider at least. You know, ultimately, the goal has to be to get them on medication in the short term that helps them clear up their mental sort of uh, landscape sufficiently to uh, then make the choice to continue to pursue treatment, right? Ultimately, unfortunately, 
many, many, many people with these diseases are treatment resistant um, and don't stay on a medication for long. But the best that you can do is get them medicated in the short term so that they then have a clearer mind in which they can say, yes, I need help. For me personally, I mean, it really just sort of took the destruction of my life as I knew it to finally force me to understand the scenario that I was in and uh, to commit to medication where I had been off and on medication for the prior 15 years. And, but that's only going to come with a shock to the system. And I think that if involuntary commitment is the only thing that can sort of produce that shock to the system, then so be it. All right. Well, Freddie, this has been a fascinating conversation and I really appreciate it. We're going to keep you a little bit over time to talk about something totally unrelated, which is uh, your recent essay about how the 1990s were the the best decade. Um, But in the meantime, I guess we should tell people that they can find you on your Substack. You are extraordinarily prolific there. You're also the author of a book called The Cult of Smart, which we did not talk about at all, but maybe we can have you back to talk about that uh, one of these days. Is there anything else we need to know about you uh, where people can find you? Nope. Just check out my newsletter, freddydebord.substack.com. Okay. Well, Freddie, thanks so much. That was my conversation with Freddie DeBoer. His newsletter can be found at freddiedeboer.substack.com. That's F-R-E-D-D-I-E-D-E-B-O-E-R. If you want to hear the second part of this conversation, please join my Substack at megandaum.com. You can get all kinds of stuff there, including updates on the unspeakeasy. Again, our May 8th through 11th retreat in Minneapolis now has a daytime option. And this is for ladies only. Just to be clear, I am working on some unspeakeasy for all events. But for now, this is uh, just for the gals. But uh, please join us if you're interested. What else? I'll be at this Philip Roth Festival in New Jersey. That's not just for women. That's for everybody. New Jersey Performing Arts Center, March 18th. If you're interested in that, go to njpac.org and uh, come out and see me. Okay, I think that's it for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 